All right, Jeremiah 22, and I'm going to address this chapter on the basis of an overall narrative at the outset, beginning to focus on the text in verse 10, and then expanding from there. This will actually be review in some ways, but in other ways there will be some new things here. So let's get the broad picture as we then uh, focus on what is distinctive and what we have actually uh, talked about before. In that way, it'll be a bit of a review. So as you'll notice in the 10th verse, the text says, Do not weep for the dead or mourn for him, but weep continually for the one who goes away. Now, this sets up a question of the identity of the dead one for whom no mourning is to be displayed and the weeping for the one who goes away. The other part of this issue is the contrast between the never return dimension and the native land Dimension or the away dimension. So let's attempt to understand who's being described here. And if some of you have had a chance to read over and think about it, if you'd like to suggest the blank line underneath the dead one is the identity of the one who is dead. Ben? No, not not this one. Okay, I'll ask you for the next question. That is Josiah. Okay, so Ben, who is the one who goes away? That's Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz. All right. So if you'll notice in verse eleven, the two names are provided. And so we come to the contrast or the situation in which Josiah died and Jehoahaz came to the throne, his son, actually his baby son, the youngest of four. And what about that other part of this 10th verse? He'll never return. He's going away. He'll never return where? Or who is it that's never going to return? The one who's exiled. Pardon? It's the one who's exiled. Yes, and who is he? Ben, who is he? Well, that is Jehoahaz. That's Jehoahaz, all right? So he's never going to return to where, Terry? To uh, Judea, To Judah, correct. And where is he going away to? Okay, where is he going away to? Egypt. He is going away to Egypt. All right, so there we have lined out the parallel between verses 10 and 11, the one verse explaining the other and giving you the identity of the people that are being described. All right, now, what is the date of this event? The date of the one who died and the one who goes away. When did Josiah die? 
All right, that's 609 B.C. And where did Josiah die? Terry? At Megiddo. And why did Josiah die at Megiddo? Who killed him? Pharaoh Necho, the one who's actually going to take Jehoahaz down into Egypt, all right? So, Necho kills Josiah. Why did Necho kill Josiah? Or rather, why did he kill him? Okay, why did Necho kill Josiah? No, I don't remember. Ben? Because he came out against Pharaoh Nico, even though he had said to stay away. Okay. What was Josiah trying to do? He was trying to cut him off. He was trying to stop him from going where? To Carchemish. Very interesting story on the internet today about the rediscovery of Carchemish. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia was there back at the turn of the 20th century with C. Leonard Woolley, one of the great archaeologists of the 19th and 20th century, excavated Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham lived for many years before he went to Haran. But at any rate, uh, it's been uncovered again, and so they're uh, looking to uh, explore that Hittite, the ancient Hittite character of Carchemish. <clears throat> so at any rate, uh, uh, a name that Ben mentioned was on the Internet today. Uh, and why was Nico going up to Carchemish? Ben, you still have the floor. To uh, take on the king of Babylon. To take on the king of Babylon. Okay. Uh, any other thing that's in play there at Carchemish? The remnant he, of the Assyrians. The remnant of Assyria. The last of the Assyrian Empire, which had come to the west after the destruction of Nineveh in 612. So that Nico is going up to ally himself, to become an, an ally of the remnant of Assyria in hopes of stopping the advancing power of Babylon. All right, so Josiah falls to that. And uh, where then does uh, Nico uh, replace Josiah with uh, Jehoahaz. I'm sorry, where does he take Jehoahaz off of the throne of Judah? Does he come to Jerusalem to remove Jehoahaz? No, in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 33, you may want to make a note of it. It's on his way back down from Carchemish, uh, <clears throat> where he had been defeated by Nabopolassar and the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar. It's on his way back to Egypt that he pauses at Ribla. Second Kings 23.33 indicates, and he calls Jehoahaz uh, to that location, and he removes the crown from him, or he unseats him from the throne of Jerusalem. <clears throat> putting an end to a very short reign of three months, which is just about the time it took him to go up to Carchemish after Josiah was killed at Megiddo and come back down in retreat, heading back down to Egypt. So he summons Jehoahaz to Ribla and removes him and replaces him on the throne with whom?
Jehoiakim. Very good. Now, the significance of this event is that the control of Judah shifts. In 609, with the removal, the death of Josiah, the removal of Jehoahaz, and the establishment of Jehoiakim as a puppet of the Egyptian pharaoh, the Egyptian kingdom, the shift of power is no longer Assyria in Judah. It's not going to be Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't come down chasing after Nico. He goes back to Babylon. The shift of power is to Egypt, and for four years, from 609 to 605, Egypt is going to be the dominant uh, power broker in Judah. Tribute is going to be exacted by Jehoiakim to pay taxes to the Egyptian pharaoh. All right, so uh, we have here in chapter 22 a reflection of the events which led to the death of Josiah, his replacement by his youngest son, Jehoahaz, his removal by the pharaoh of Egypt, Necho, and his replacement, that is Jehoahaz's replacement, by one that Necho put in place, Jehoiakim. So as we look at that uh, verse again, verse 10, do not weep for the dead or mourn for him. Don't weep for Josiah, but weep continually for the one who goes away. Now, why don't you weep for Josiah? Well, there's no point in weeping for the dead. Now, his life is over. Weep for the one who's going to be living a death in exile. For he will never return, he will never come back to Judah, he will never see his native land again, and in fact, Jehoahaz did die in exile in Egypt. We don't know exactly when, but he never returned to his native land. All right, any questions about uh, 10 and 11? Now we go down to verse 18. And in verse 18, we are told they are not to lament for him. Who are they not to lament for in this verse? Anyone? Jehoiakim. All right, so we moved on from the career of Jehoahaz and Josiah to the career of Jehoiakim. Why are you not to lament him? This obviously is in reference to when do you lament somebody or not lament them? When they die. So when did Jehoiakim die? After 11 years, correct? You're just coming this way. So when did he go to the throne? So when he, you got 11 years, so what are you going to do? You're going to subtract 11 from 609, right? So 1 from 9 is what? 8. Good. And 1 from 0 is what? What? 1 from 0 is what? Or 1 from 10 is what? 598. 598. There you go. So you subtract 11 from 609, we get 598 or 597. <clears throat> That's the death of Jehoiakim. And what else is going on when he dies?
Why? Go ahead, King. Nebuchadnezzar came. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar came. This is the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has come to Jerusalem, Terry? Uh, second. This is the second time. When did he come first? Uh, in 605. 605. And who did he take away in 605? Daniel and his three friends. Now he comes again here in 598-97. Who's he going to take away this time? Terry, you're doing well. Ezekiel. He's going to take away Ezekiel. Anybody else he's going to take away? Okay, we'll hold off on that one. <clears throat> so this is the second siege of Jerusalem, and Jehoiakim is dead, and they are instructed not to lament for him. In fact, in this passage, it talks about how he is to be given a donkey's burial in verse 819, dragged off and thrown over the gates of Jerusalem once again in verse 19. <clears throat> Jehoiakim wasn't treated very well. <clears throat> Why then... Does Jeremiah say this? Why didn't the people treat him very well? Why did Nebuchadnezzar come? Terry? Because uh, his, his advisors weren't well-versed in the world situation, and they advised him to uh, make an, go back and make another alliance with Egypt. Which he had done before, right? Very good. And naturally, uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar were not. This is the last straw. For him, the last straw. Correct. All right. So, yes, Terry has has uh, lined it out very well. Uh, Jehoiakim decided that he was going to go back to the same nation that he had served for four years, from 609 to 605. Of course, when Nebuchadnezzar came in 605, the power shifted, not from to, not to Egypt, but from Egypt to Babylon. So <clears throat> Jehoiakim thinks that he'll get rid of Babylon. He's tired of paying tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, so he attempts to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and that brings him and the army to Jerusalem for the second time. And uh, and who is uh, successor to Jehoiakim since they threw his body over the wall and gave him the burial of a donkey. Robert? Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim, yes. N is after M in the alphabet, so Jehoiakim and then Jehoiakim. So it's an easy way to remember which one's first and which one's second. Well, how long does Jehoiakim reign? Three months, the same as Jehoah has. All right, so the control of the nation has shifted from uh, Babylon uh, to Egypt for a short time and then back to Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar comes uh, in 598-597. Any questions then about the section on Jehoiakim? Notice we've started with Josiah in verse 10 and 11 and to Jehoahaz also in verse 10 and 11. Now we're to the successor of Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, in verse 18 and following. And now, do you have any questions about that? And now we're going to look at verse 24. Now, who is the king in verse 24? Jehoiakim. All right. Or uh, 
Kay, what's your NASB say? I wasn't looking at it. Oh, shame on you. The authorized text. Ben, what's your NASB say? Konaya. And you have a marginal note that, as Cheryl pointed out, the marginal note indicates that it is Jehoiakim. All right, so here's a peculiar name for Jehoiakim. In fact, Jeremiah is one of the few to use this name for this individual. And what is the reference to the other country there in verse uh, 26. That is Babylon. That is Babylon. Why, Ben? Good. Why? Because he, he surrendered to, to the king of uh, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was taken with his family, with his wife and officers and so on. And his mother, too, right? Queen mother, yes. Possibly his wife. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so, Jehoiakim or Coniah, surrenders during this second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 598-597. You recall that he goes out, so to speak, cap in hand, in order to surrender to the Babylonian monarch. And he does so, perhaps, to spare the city, as well as to save his own life, and is taken captive to Babylon, uh, where uh, he spends the rest of his life in exile. Now, we already found out from Kay that he's only king for three months. Who is his successor? Who comes next? That is Zedekiah, who will be the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he is not named in this 22nd chapter, but he's implied in the 22nd chapter, and we'll point out uh, how in a little more detail uh, later on. All right, the shift then <clears throat> goes back to Babylon from 597 to the end of the kingdom. And what's the date of the end of the kingdom of Judah? Christina? 586 is the third siege, and that is the last straw <clears throat> when Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and burns the temple. <clears throat> All right. Um, This chapter, then, is a thumbnail sketch or overview of the narrative of the last 30-odd years of the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, including the story of the turning points in the life of Josiah, particularly his death, his succession by his son Jehoahaz, and by his succession by Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, who is implied. So we have a chapter which is reviewing uh, this history of the last days, the last years, the kingdom of Judah. Now, there's one other name uh, that we didn't discuss, and so we'll discuss it now. If you look at verse 11, and I'm going to give uh, Kay a chance to redeem herself with her New American Standard. And what does your text say in verse 11, a name that we haven't discussed as yet, but you have in your shallow, and you have a note indicating that that is the name of Jehoahaz. So we have the last, go ahead, Ben. When I was going through this, in the first Chronicles 315, I list this with sons of Josiah, and the last son, the fourth, is Shalom. 
first one is Johanan. No, actually the fourth, Johanan. Johanan is the first one, right? And the last one, and Shalom. So the name Shalom does also appear in First Chronicles 3.15 for the youngest son of Josiah. And that name Shalom in verse 11 of Jeremiah 22 is also indicated as a son of Josiah, king of Judah. So the four last kings of Judah have two or more names. And so we want to look at this issue and think about it. Uh, we had been just read First Corinthians, First Chronicles, rather three fifteen, in which one of the names of the uh, youngest son of Josiah is Shalom, and so you can write that in beside it. But in Second Kings chapter twenty three, verse thirty. He is named as K's margin indicated. And what was the marginal name there, K? Once again, Jehoahaz. And that's where you'll find his name in the uh, historical book. So Shalom is also known as Jehoahaz and vice versa. They have two names. And we'll ask the question later on about why they have these two names. But the second one is in 2 Kings 23, 34. And if you'll turn to that, the first person that has it, I'd like them to read it out. We won't have to read the whole verse, but uh, let's read it out when we get it. Second Kings twenty-three thirty-four. Then Pharaoh Nico made Eliakim the son of Josiah king in the place of Josiah's father and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Very good. So Eliakim is named in 2 Kings 23:34. His name is changed to Jehoiakim, which is also his name in 1 Chronicles 3:15, which Ben read a little bit uh, before. So you can place those two names uh, in those positions. Eliakim is uh, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is Eliakim. He has two names interchangeably. Now, in Jeremiah 22:24, the next king of the southern kingdom is named, and we'll go back to Kesh. I think she's the one that saw it, or maybe it was Ben that had it in his version. But at any rate, uh, yeah, it was Ben, uh, because uh, Kay was looking somewhere else. Do you want to redeem yourself again? Okay. Verse 24 of Jeremiah 22. Coniah. All right, so the third king in our sequence is named Coniah in Jeremiah 22:24. He's also uh, known in 2 Kings 24:8 as what? You don't need to turn to it, but you should know it. Go ahead, Christina. Jehoiakim. And I'll give you one more. In Jeremiah 24 verse 1, if you just turn the page to 24:1, he's called Jeconiah. But it is the same individual. We'll focus on Coniah and Jehoiakim for our purposes, but just so you know, notice I said that the last four kings have two or more, and this one has three. All right, now we need to turn to 2 Kings 24, 17. And so once again, if you get to it, just read it out, because this is a name we haven't seen at all in our sequence yet. Made his uncle Mataniah king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So here is 
Zedekiah with another name, Mataniah. And 2 Kings 24, 17 gives you both. All right, so we have Shalom and Jehoahaz, Eliakim and Jehoiakim, Coniah and Jehoiakim, Mataniah and Zedekiah. There's a lot of names to memorize for your Bible trivia game. I understand. I realize that. But nonetheless, they're in the Bible and they are a record of historical fact. So we have to ask ourselves, why the two names? Why the two names? Ben? I think you once mentioned that these names were changed by the king who made them the best. That is at least true in two cases. With respect to Eliakim, his name is changed to Jehoiakim by Nico. And in the case of Mataniah, his name is changed to Zedekiah by Nebuchadnezzar. So we do know that the name change occurs by another individual, by the king who places him on the throne. Is that what's happening with Shalom and Jehoahaz, however? And is that what's happening with Coniah and Jehoiakim? It doesn't necessarily explain two out of the four. So we're only batting 500. Any Major League Baseball player would be glad to be batting 500. Go ahead, Robert. Would it have something to do with the languages of different countries? No, it's, it's not really. It's a good thought, but it is not related. These are all Hebrew names or Semitic names, so it doesn't have anything to do with that. All right, what is happening to them in the one case that Ben has alluded to? Namely, they're going to the throne, right? They're being put on the throne. So the name change has something to do with being put on the throne. They're given a name at the change of status, When they're elevated from, shall we say, a common prince, because these are all royal blue bloods, right? They've all got blue bloodline, royal bloodline in them. They're all blue bloods when they're changing their status to actually occupy the throne, become royalty. They're not princes anymore, they're kings. And so a name indicative of the change of status is bestowed upon them. Well, what would that mean about the name that they had before? That name quite possibly is their given name. That is the name they were given at birth, their common name. So we may be moving through a change from a common uh, nominative, a common denominator, to a royal denominator. So Shalom was what the boy was called as long as he was a prince. But when he becomes king, he's Jehoahaz. Eliakim is what the boy was called as long as he was not on the throne. Jehoiakim is his throne name. That's probably the most reasonable explanation for this. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we're uh, we're guessing, we're speculating here. I think it's a reasonable speculation because it is common for uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, monarchs to take a different name when they sit upon the throne. So there's nothing unusual in that respect. 
The other thing to note is that we could be talking about a change in relation. Now, I've alluded to this in the change from being a prince to being a king. But it also is part of the change in relationship from being a follower to being a leader. From being an underling to being a potentate or a regent. There's a relational change. It's not just positional. It's relational. All of this may help to explain why we have these duplicate names and why they seem to pour out upon us in the last 30 years of the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. Any questions or comments? Ben? Is this just for this period? Because it didn't happen before, did it? There are, uh, there are other examples where a name change does occur. Uh, <clears throat> I'd have to go back and, and look them up. It, it is not as common as it is here. These are coming rapid fire. And it raises the issue of the significance of it. And, uh, you know, I think it's, a, I think it's a good question to push the envelope a little further in that, okay, what's going on? Is this because of the urgency or the imminence of the decline of the empire or of the nation rather? Is, is it tied to that in some way? Is it drawing attention to that critical uh, status of the, of the kingdom as it comes to its death throes? I really don't know. Uh, it's, it's interesting to kick this kind of thing around, uh, but uh, I, I don't have any suggestions beyond what I've made. Now, uh, there's a fascinating archaeological record with respect to several incidents that we've already discussed. And uh, one of them comes from the Babylonian Chronicle, the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings, which tells the story of the rise of Nabopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar, from 626 B.C. when he began to take on the Assyrian Empire till the time in which he overthrows Assyria and then records the career of Nebuchadnezzar uh, past the time of his death and his successor. <clears throat> that chronicle was uh, translated into English in 1956 by <clears throat> a, a, the late eminent uh, <clears throat> Assyriologist D.J. Wiseman, Donald J. Wiseman, who was an Australian, uh, a man of evangelical convictions and high integrity, a man for whom I have a great deal of respect because uh, his research work and his insight not only into the historicity of Scripture but also to the inspiration of the Word of God uh, was very uh, is very helpful. So uh, the portion from the Babylonian Chronicle which you have uh, comes from a combination of Wiseman's translation and several other versions of this. Uh, this is an Akkadian or cuneiform original translated into English. And so uh, let's note uh, the text and let's see if we can fill in the blanks. In year seven in the month Kislev, which would be November 598 B.C., the king of Akkad or the Akkadian king or the Assyrian king, the king of Akkad in Babylon, who is, we'll fill in the blank later, later on, mustered his troops and marched to Hatiland, which is Syria-Palestine, and besieged the city of fill-in-the-blank. 
On the second day of the month, Adar, March 16th, 597 B.C., notice we have the second day of the month so we can actually date it to the month and the day. He seized the city and captured the king, fill in the blank. He appointed a king of his choice, fill in the blank, took spoil and brought it to Babylon. All right, now this is the Babylonian record. This is the record of the Chaldean Chronicle. So, who is this king of Akkad who comes in November 598? Anyone? That is Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, he is the king of Babylon. He has mustered his troops in November and marches to Hathi land and besieges the city of Judah. Fill in the blank. It is Jerusalem. So the city of Judah that he's besieging is Jerusalem. This is the what siege of Jerusalem, Terry? Uh, Second. Second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. On the second day of the month, Adar, he seized the city and captured the king. Whom? Fill in the blank. Jehoiakim? Jehoiakim. No. Kin. Kin. Jehoiakim. Okay, remember Jehoiakim is... Dead. When Jehoiakim is captured, his uncle is dead. His father, rather, is dead. So he captures King Jehoiakim and he appoints a king of his choice. Fill in the blank. Zedekiah. All right, so here you have the Babylonian record of what you just went over from the biblical record. And notice the two records coincide exactly. In fact, we can actually date the biblical record now very exactly on the basis of the Chaldean Chronicle. This allows us to know that Nebuchadnezzar mustered his troops in November of 598. He started marching to Syria, Palestine. Probably took him a month, month and a half to get there. Besieged the city. End of December, beginning of January. And by March, the city falls. And how long did Jehoiakim rule? Three months, which is exactly coincident with this. It it measures it exactly. And we know the names of these individuals because we understand the biblical record, even though they're not specifically named in the Babylonian text. Any questions about that? We also have a text from this chronicle for 586 B.C. and the final destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now, we also have a Babylonian ration tablet, which is dated to about 592 B.C. This is not part of the Babylonian Chronicle or the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings. This is a a clay tablet that was unearthed in the excavations excavations of uh, Babylon. It turned up uh, many years ago, had been translated, and it's a ration tablet, meaning it lists the uh, provisions that were given to a particular individual. Well, who is this individual? Let's read the tablet. To Ya'ukinu, king of Yahudu, two and a half selah, or three and three quarter pints of oil, for the five sons of the king of Yahuda. All right, let's begin with the word Yahuda. What do you think that is? That is Judah, yes. That is the, the Akkadian or cuneiform word for Judah. Who is Ya'ukinu? No. Who would be getting rations 
on a Babylonian ration tablet who was carried off to Babylon. Carried? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Yes. Kinu is Jehoiakim. So this is a ration tablet that actually has the name of Jehoiakim on it in cuneiform or in Akkadian and talks about how he was provided for in captivity, including his five sons. Second, for... Yes, Yaukinu is Jehoiakin. Jehoiakin. Notice the Y-K-N, which is consistent with Jehoiakin as a, as, as a Hebrew uh, uh, root or, or name. So when Jehoiakin <coughs> went into captivity, he went into captivity with at least five sons. <coughs> In fact, First Chronicles tells us he had seven sons, which means he had a wife or several wives. So in addition to his mother, <coughs> who went out with him, his wife and his sons went out with him to surrender in 597 when he was carried off captive to Babylon. And here is the tablet of his provision. He's being given three and a half pints of oil, which he could use to mix with his bread or to use for flour or to use for uh, other cooking purposes or for lighting purposes. We're not sure exactly what purpose it was put to, but nonetheless, this... uh, this little tablet tells you about Jehoiakim in exile. And the Bible tells you about that too. In 2 Kings 25, in Jeremiah 52, there's also an indication that Jehoiakim was provided for in his captivity by the king of Babylon. And here's a tablet that shows how the king of Babylon took care of him. At least one little insight into that and verifies the fact that Jehoiakim did go to Babylon and in 592 was still alive in exile. Any questions about... <clears throat> well, I have some confusion there. In, in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, there said, it says there, thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. Very good. And the confusion is, if he has five sons and seven sons... <clears throat> Then how do you write him down childless? They all Pardon? They all no. Terry? Well, you haven't mentioned something I was sure you were going to about the insignia uh, ring that, that the, really the Lord ripped off, meaning that, that he rejected him because of his sinful ways. And if the Lord stops the the uh, hierarchy or the it doesn't matter how many sons he has if if that's the end that's the end. Yeah. So Terry's referring to the fact that there's not going to be any issue of Jehoiakim to sit on the throne of Judah. Now let's take a look at that 30th verse which Ben cited. Ben pointed out the text which appears to mean that he had no children. But let's look at how that passage unfolds. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of Judah or ruling again, throne of David or ruling again in Judah. The parallelism in that is this is why you write him down childless. None of his children are going to sit on the throne of David. They're not going to rule in Judah. 
The implication then of the passage in verse 30 is to keep the the symmetry uh, in view as you read that word childless, because what comes after it is giving you a further explanation of what Jeremiah reads, uh, means, or what the Lord means through Jeremiah in that case. So there's not a contradiction or a tension here. It's an indication that <clears throat> there's not going to be any Jehoiakimite on the throne of Judah. None of his descendants are going to sit there. Go ahead. In, uh, in Kings, I think it says Jehoiakim was 18 years old and he reigned. And in First Chronicles, he said that he is eight, eight years old. Very good. And Ben, you've been doing your homework. That's excellent. Uh, most people believe that the Chronicles is an error in copying and that it is proper to read it in terms of the 18-year-old, 18 years of age in uh, uh, Kings. Obviously, if he has five sons, he's got to be older than eight years of age. So I, I think that's the most reasonable explanation, that a copyist error has entered in for some reason, that they may not have read a particular symbol correctly, or it just skipped over in, in uh, the transmission of the book of Chronicles. If he, if he was 18 years old, then he began to reign, mm-hmm. and he reigned only for three months, then his sons must all, uh, all have been born in Babylon. I don't think necessarily, though it is possible. Okay, I won't deny the possibility that they they were all born in Babylon, <clears throat> but I think it's possible that he may have had some sons already. There's, uh, I mean, uh, we know that uh, at, at virility, uh, males can have children if there are women around, and uh, <clears throat> it's conceivable that this uh, that this was already present. Uh, he was already engaged or married uh, <clears throat> before he was carried away into captivity. Right. Yeah, could have had several wives. Correct. Those are the best plausible explanations for it. And and we talk about the textual criticism issue. The textual criticism issue is a matter of weighing the the importance of the manuscripts. And uh, that that is an issue which challenges us with what you brought up, 8 versus 18. But I think the most reasonable solution is uh, somebody left out a 10 spot. That's my that, that's my suggestion. And that's generally speaking, even the liberal commentators will acknowledge that. And they're not usually willing to grant us that much leeway, generally speaking. Okay, so we've made our way through this narrative of the kings from Josiah to Jehoahaz to Jehoiakim or Shalom to Eliakim or Jehoiakim to Mataniah or Zedekiah. Zedekiah implied. When we come back from the break, we will uh, continue and we'll take a look at how Zedekiah is more explicit than implicit in this narrative. But now you've got the broad narrative overview of what Jeremiah is addressing in this chapter. Now, after that ration tablet, I have a suggested structure that I'm not going to discuss save to note the framing device that is there uh, in the chapter. Uh, You'll notice that the first verse of chapter 22 includes, thus says the Lord, and the second verse has the expression, hear the word of the Lord. Then as you look at the bottom of that suggested structural outline, 
here the word of the Lord is in the next to the last verse of the chapter, and thus says the Lord is in the last verse of the chapter. So at least in that outer frame of 1 and 2 and 29 and 30, we have a chiastic reversal, which then uh, presses us to the center of the chapter, which includes this description of the history of the kings. And so I'm suggesting by that structure that the chapter has its own integrity and the integrity is related to the narrative of the sequence of the kings in order from Josiah down to Zedekiah implied. Now, uh, let's fill in the blanks of the next section of the outline there on the bottom of page two. Uh, I want to point out another interesting symmetry Uh, Josiah dies in the what? Where does he die? Wilderness? Not in the wilderness. He dies at Megiddo, and where is Megiddo? Christina, where's Megiddo? At the Battle of Carchemish. No, he's on the way to Carchemish. Uh, Where's Megiddo? Uh, North of Jerusalem? It's it's actually northeast, that's correct. It's not really directly north, it's northeast. So that uh, Megiddo is in what land? Israel. In Judah. So he dies in the land, in the land of Judah. Now, Shalom, or Jehoahaz, shall never see what? The land again. Yes, he's not going to see the land of Judah again. Where is he carried off to? Okay, where did they carry him off to? Um, Which one? Egypt. Egypt, very good. Jehoiakim dies in the... In the land. They throw him over the wall of Jerusalem. All right, so he dies in the land of Judah. Coniah or Jeconiah or Jehoiakim will never see the land again. Same as Jehoahaz. Where does he die? Jehoahaz carried off to Egypt. Ben, where does Jehoiakim die? In Babylon. And Zedekiah dies in in Babylon as well. All right, now notice the antithesis. <clears throat> Josiah, the uh, last good king, dies in the land of Judah. Zedekiah, the last king of all, dies outside the land in Babylonian exile. And in between, we have a symmetry between two exiled kings, Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim, who never see that land again. And squeezed in between is the evil king, Jehoiakim, who dies in the land. An interesting pattern there with respect to the destiny and the connection of their destiny in the land of Judah or outside the land of Judah as we consider the sequence based on the language that is here in Jeremiah 22. Any questions about that? All right, now we want to take a look at some details, beginning with the second verse of chapter 22. Go down to the house of the king of Judah. Jeremiah is told to go down to the house of the king of Judah. Who is this king of Judah?
Carrie? I think that is uh, Zedekiah. It is Zedekiah. How do you know? You're right. How do you know you're right? Uh, I know you're right. How do you know you're right? <laughs> Uh, Zedekiah asked him to come. Very good. Where did he ask him? Where would I find this? All right, we look back to chapter 21, the first verse. Zedekiah sends to Jeremiah with a request, inquire of the Lord. We talked about that last week. So this house of the king in chapter 22, verse 1, is a throwback. It is a connecting link with the 21st chapter where Zedekiah was being addressed. This is one of the reasons that Zedekiah is implicitly present in chapter 22. But it's also an explanation of the seamless narrative. We have a narrative sequence here. We're looking back to Zedekiah and proceeding to review the history that precedes Zedekiah and comes up to his own days on the throne. Notice what Jeremiah is doing. He is retrospectively reviewing the past history of Judah from Zedekiah on back, and then he moves forward again. Now, how do we know this? Well, what does Zedekiah mean? In Hebrew, it's Zidkiyahu. Zidkiyahu. Zid is from the Hebrew word Zedek, the root Zedek for righteousness. Ki is the personal pronoun. My and Yahoo is Lord. Lord. So the name Zedekiah in Hebrew can be broken down into the Lord is my righteousness. Zedki Yahoo. Doesn't sound much like Zedekiah, but uh, that's the way it would be uh, pronounced in Hebrew. All right, we'll hold on to that because the name of Zedekiah is important. It's quite significant. But my point is that uh, I suggested at the beginning that Zedekiah is implicit here, and here is one of the ways we see that he is explicit. All right, now verse 10. We've already talked about this, uh, so this will be a quick review. Who is the dead one? Anyone? That is Josiah, who is the one who goes away. Jehoahaz, good. Verse 18, who will they not lament? Anyone? Jehoiakim, very good. And who goes into another country? Jehoiakim, very good. Now that brings us to chapter 23, verse 6, and I'll have to turn to that one because we haven't looked at that yet. So chapter 23, verse 6. And the Hebrew in the last line of 23.6 is Zidkenu. 
And what does it mean? It's there in the verse in front of me. The Lord is our righteousness. Tzid, from Tzedek again, righteousness. K, our, I'm sorry, K, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pronouncing the Hebrew, I'm sorry, K. <laughs> you have a Hebrew name. <laughs> the new is the pronoun. Uh, our and Lord is understood. Actually, it's in the text in Hebrew 6 of Yahweh, Tzid uh, Kenu, the Lord is our righteousness. <clears throat> Who is this Lord, our righteousness? I like that. I accept that. But I want it in terms of the context. I like that, but I want it in terms of the context. When you said Zedekiah, Lord is my righteousness. This is the Lord is our righteousness. So who is this? He's the anti-Zedekiah. He's the anti-Zedekiah. Notice once again the symmetry. You see, the Lord is my righteousness, Zedekiah, in verse 2 of uh, chapter 22, that the king of Judah who is named in chapter 21, and who is the king or who is the figure in chapter 23, verse 6, he is the very opposite. He is the anti-Zedekiah. Who is he? Is the Christ? He is the King of da- the Son of David. He is the Lion out of the tribe of Judah. But notice that this chapter then flows from the Zedekiah, who is not the true Zedekiah, to the Zedekiah who is the true Zedekiah. He is the anti-Zedekiah. And so we're going to place a frame around this whole unit from Zedekiah to his antithesis. And in between, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakin, back to Zedekiah. The one who comes in 23.6 is the one who displaces Zedekiah, the last son of David, to sit on the throne of the house of Judah. And this one who comes in 23.6 comes as Lord, and he comes as our righteousness. Is that a suggestion, then, that my righteousness, the Lord is my righteousness in Zedekiah, the king of Judah, at its demise, that that is an affirmation of his own pride, his own arrogance? Is it an indication that he, he, he took a presumptuous pride in his name as if he was somehow safe? The Lord is my righteousness, though obviously he wasn't practicing that righteousness. He is regarded in Chronicles and Kings as an evil king. All of the last kings of Judah from Jehoahaz on to Zedekiah are evil kings. Josiah is the last good king of the southern kingdom. We're going to come back to this chapter next week. We're going to fill out the picture of the true shepherd in this 23rd chapter.
This chapter goes with chapter 21 and 22. It does so because it tells you about the true Davidide, the true son of the, of the descendants of Judah, the true son of the king, the true king of kings. It has to be here. It has to be here to round out the story. It has to be here to complete the narrative. Otherwise, you're left with nothing but the wicked kings of Judah as the final word. All right, so next week we're going to have one of the most marvelous eschatological sections of Jeremiah to look at, but we want to keep in mind what it is that's being portrayed. He is the very opposite, the very antithesis of the Zedekiah who brings this kingdom down to death. Question, Robert. How do Jews see this, since they don't believe in Jesus Christ? When they come to this, it, it kind of ends with all the evil kings. Yes. Uh, they look If they look for a future fulfillment of it, they're still looking for a messianic king who will be out of the line of David somehow. If they don't look for a future restoration, if they're very liberal Jews and they really don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, then they look at this as an explanation or expostulation of adoration. Like in the Psalms, the Lord is our righteousness, or righteous is the Lord, and altogether holy in his ways, that kind of language. So it's doxological language. It's not language which is projecting a figure to come. It is the experience of the Jewish religious heart. Okay, they, they will they will not take it to Christ. He cannot be the accomplishment of this passage. No Jew believes that. And of course, they didn't believe it about him when he was on the earth. Tragically, but that that is the case. All right. Now, verse three of chapter 22 has this language of do justice and righteousness. There are some echoes there of something we had before. If you glance back to the previous chapter, 21, and you notice verse 12, an appeal is made to Zedekiah and to the whole house of David in the person of Zedekiah to administer justice. It's the same word that appears in chapter 22, verse 3. So once again, we have a connection between 21 and 22 and between the address to do justice or administer justice, which is parallel in both cases. So we have an echo in 22 of what was affirmed in 21. I think it's being echoed and affirmed of the very same individual. It's a challenge to Zedekiah. Note then the parallels in 21.11. And 22.1, the language also bears out what I've indicated. In 21.11, you notice the phrase, house of the kingdom of Judah. And in 22.1, you see that same phrase, the house of the king of Judah. Then as we pointed out in 21.12, administer justice. 
and in 22.3, do justice and righteousness. An interesting symmetry which reinforces the integrity or the same focus upon the same individual and the same uh, uh, reign of the house of David in Jerusalem. Right, now we change gears in verse 13. There is a woe oracle here. Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness. First of all, who does this? Is this Zedekiah, since we have the word righteousness there again? No, it's not. We've already progressed from Josiah to Shalom in verse 11. So we are on our way beyond Jehoahaz. Terry? It's, uh, I think it's Jehoiakim. It is Jehoiakim. Very good. How do you know that? You know it for two reasons. Verse 18 brings us to Jehoiakim, as we pointed out before. And verse 15. Did not your father do justice and righteousness? Who was the father of Jehoiakim? Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim. So consequently, here is a reference to Jehoiakim in terms of his paternity, his relationship between father and son. All right. Now, he builds... His house. What house is he building? What do kings build? He's building a palace. Doesn't he already have a palace? Didn't David build a palace? He wants not a bigger one. He wants. Yeah, he wants his own. He wants. He has his own. He wants another one. So he's got one. He wants another one. You know, you've got a house in the center of Jerusalem or down towards the south of Jerusalem. He wants a house in the north of Jerusalem. Then maybe he wants a house in the east of Jerusalem. He wants a house in the west of Jerusalem. You know, can't have enough houses, right? You've got to have a house here. got to have a house there. got to have a house everywhere else. How many houses do you need? Well, as many tax write-offs as you need, I guess. But at any rate, Jehoiakim... Wants another palace, probably at the north end of Jerusalem where he could catch a little bit of the cooler breezes. And how does he build this house? He panels it with cedar and then he paints the cedar with vermilion. Well, being down to Lowe's or Home Depot and pick up cedar and, you know, it's not too expensive, right? Sixth century BC, where is it coming from? It's coming from the cedars of Lebanon. It's exactly right. So, how expensive do you think that is? That's real pricey stuff, exactly, because you've got to pay them to get it cut down, you've got to pay them to haul it, and you've got to pay them to cart it almost 100 miles down to Jerusalem. All right, so this is not cheap wood. This is expensive stuff. This is a very lavish palace that Jehoiakim is building. Notice verse 14. I want it to be spacious. I want it to have paneling. I want to have it cut out windows. 
Maybe in double pain, right? Okay. Now, how does he do this? How does he build this lavish palace? With slave labor. He uses his neighbor's service without pay. What do you call this when you use labor without pay? You call it corvée. That's a French word that means unpaid labor. So he's forced his countrymen to build this palace for him without paying for it. That means he's dishonest. That means he's not paying the laborer the worth of his hire. He's forcing them to labor on his behalf because he has the power to crack the whip over them. Verse 17 indicates something more about him. He traffics in dishonest gain and extortion. If we look back to 2 Kings chapter 23-35, we'll read the story of Jehoiakim when he is made tributary to Necho and Egypt. And in that passage, it says that he extracted tribute from the people of the land. In other words, like every totalitarian ruler, he raised taxes in order to reduce the people to subjection. Here, God is charging him with extortion and dishonest gain. In other words, if we look back to chapter 21, chapter 22, verse 3, God is charging him with being a robber. Why does he extort the people and and traffic in dishonest gain in order to promote his political agenda with Egypt. That is certainly the case in Jehoiakim's initial phase. And in his Babylonian phase, he is doing the same thing, only in throwing off Babylon He thinks to take the profits or he takes the tribute and pays for his own pleasure. All right, so there's political corruption, economic corruption. There's oppression of the laboring man here coming from the head of the government. What else is there? Verse 20. Your lovers have been crushed. Now, in the earlier part of that verse, there are three regions named. Lebanon, Bashan, and Abarim. What do these names refer to? Cheryl, you said just a little bit ago something about Lebanon. Where do they grow? Oh, my brother. Lebanon, in Lebanon. And do they grow down at sea, on the sea coast? No. Where do they grow? Must be in the, in the center of the country. Yeah, like they grow on the uh, Cascade and the Olympic foothills, right? They grow on the slopes of the mountain. So these are mountain 
uh, bread trees. Uh, they like lots of, uh, uh, of uh, moisture, etc. Okay, so all of these locations are mountain ranges. In fact, Lebanon is named from the Lebanon mountain range that goes right along the coast. Actually, it's a little inland from the coast of the Mediterranean. Bashan and Abarim is in Moab and is the, re, is the range which has what mountain in it? Mount Nebo. What do you know about Mount Nebo? Loretta, what do you know about Mount Nebo? Moses went there. Yes, and went there to do what? Well, he got the look that was before he was gathered to his people. Good. He went there to die, but he was able to see the promised land from a distance. All right. All right. So these are all mountain ranges or mountainous, mountainous, mountainous regions. What's then the meaning of this? All your lovers have been crushed. What do lovers have to do with mountain ranges? Are these honeymoon cottages on the mountaintops? High places of worship? Yes, it's high places of worship, meaning what are the lovers? Prostitutes. Yes, this is cultic prostitution on the slopes of these mountain ranges. So once again, we're referring to the immorality and the idolatry of Judah during the time of Jehoiakim and later. We have a chain of denial then. In chapter 20, in verse 21 rather, God says they will not what? They will not listen and notice the end of the verse, they will not obey. obey. They will not listen, they will not obey, they deny the word of God. They will not listen. They will not obey the word of God. They will not serve the Lord in chapter 2, verse 20. But they will serve sexual prostitutes. They say they have not gone after Baal, but they have stampeded to his sacred brothels. They say they have not sinned. See, they live in denial. We have not done this. We have not done this. We have not done the other thing. We haven't sinned. We're the righteous. They will not walk in God's ways. They're determined to walk in their own way. They will not walk in the good way. They walk with no thought for God's way. They live in denial. They are not willing. Their will is set in the opposite of the word of God and of his holy, righteous will. They live in denial of God's will, of what pleases him. What pleases him does not please them. They live in denial. And they will not repent. They refuse to turn from going after Baal. They refuse to turn from sin, they refuse to turn from walking in their evil ways. They refuse to turn from their hard-hearted unwillingness. They are addicted to themselves. They are addicted to pleasure. They are addicted to dependence. They are dependent upon the royal throne and its cronies.
So that when we come to verse 22, and God says the wind will sweep away all your shepherds, who are these shepherds? These are the leaders. These are the rulers. This is the ruling party. This is the party of political leadership and the supporters of that party. It's not just the king. It's the king and his courtiers and all those who have his ear or all of those who are jockeying to get his ear. What is going to happen to these shepherds? They're going to be swept away. By the wind. They're going to be destroyed with the city. They're going to come down in the humiliation of death and exile with the destruction of Jerusalem. All of these shepherds are living examples of failure. Failure in personal character. Because they are treacherous. They are even traitorous. Remember, they do not want to save their own city when Jeremiah puts it before them. They betray their own nation by making alliances with Egypt. They invite death upon themselves by their traitorous treachery. They are deceitful. They say, peace, peace, and there is no peace. And when war breaks out and erupts around them, they say, oh yes, but it's still peace, peace. They are deceitful. They are failed in their political leadership. They foolishly vacillate from one side to another. Now we'll go down to Egypt, now we'll go over to Babylon. Why we'll do this, now we'll do the other thing. You cannot depend upon them in terms of their foreign policy to be consistent. Because they will react to circumstances. And if the circumstances don't go their way, then they will react in denial. Their religious devotion is a failure. Their religion is a pretense. They pretend to go to the temple of the Lord, but they put idols to Baal in the temple of the Lord. They will not worship the one true God. They have ascended above that level of superstition. They are a failure in economic honesty. In the case of Jehoiakim, we saw this clearly. The economy is to serve royalty. The economy is to serve the royal goals. The economy is to serve the royal pleasure. A paneled cedar house. Forced labor. We will tax the people and deny them a fair and honest pay for their labor. We will do this to them so that we can flourish. We can prosper. We can become more wealthy and powerful. They rule over a failed cultural morality. The last three kings, the last four kings of the history of Judah presided over a culture of degeneration, a self-serving and narcissistic culture devoted to the pleasure principle, devoted to pleasing self. 
And if myself isn't pleased, then I will demand it and I will get it. And these shepherds are the leaders of a failure of integrity. They are dishonest by robbing the laboring person of his rightful wages. And they allow and tolerate the robbery of the weak. They are brutal by murdering their opposition and threatening those who dissent from them. Remember, Jehoiakim killed the prophet Uriah. He wanted to kill Jeremiah. He persecuted the prophets, those who dissented from his agenda. And they are amoral. They define morals in terms of what promotes themselves and their power. The portrait here of the rulers of Judah in the last days of its history drives you to realize that you cannot put your confidence in princes. It is a false hope. You can only put your confidence in the Lord, our righteousness. You are left with no other integrity, no other honesty, no other devotion, no other true royal leadership than the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is what you're left with, even in the days of Jeremiah. And we'll explore the riches of what you're left with next week. Do you have any questions? It must be good enough for all of us. It is our only sure hope in life and in death. Let's pray. How we thank you, O Lord, for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, your dear and only begotten Son, our precious Savior, the one who gave himself for our life, exchanged his life unto death that our death might be transformed into his life. Lord, we do treasure the life that has come to us by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of his risen grace. And we plead with you that for our daily walk, you will not allow us to become downcast or discouraged, that you will lift up our hearts to the heaven of heavens and to the right hand of the glory on high. You will encourage us with your presence with us, your Emmanuel presence in our lives, and that you will renew us in the realization that the message that we have heard and believed by your wonderful grace is the only message of hope for this world. Therefore, O Lord, In the midst of our days, 
in the midst of these last days, redouble our conviction and commitment to hold fast to that hope, to hold fast to the Christ of glory, to hold fast to the message of the gospel, the sole message of transformation. Whether it be kings, whether it be rulers, whether it be nations, the sole message of transformation is that old, old story of Jesus and his love. Thank you, blessed triune God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.